Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of this podcast, where I talk to various people about the five things they would choose from any time in their life to preserve in their very own time capsule. They can pick anything they like, a person, a place, an object, some music, something they still have, or something they wish they could have again. They pick four things that they cherish and want to keep safe, but they also have to pick one thing from their life that they would like to be rid of or wish had never happened, something they would like to bury in the ground and forget. My guest doing just that in this episode is the dancer Robin Windsor, who delighted us all for a number of years as one of the most popular dancers on BBC TV's Strictly Come Dancing, where he partnered Patsy Kensit, Anita Dobson, Lisa Riley and Dragon's Den's Deborah Meaden. Robin started dancing at the age of three and has toured the world, won numerous world championships, pioneered same-sex ballroom dance lessons at Wilton's Music Hall in London and starred on the West End stage with his dance partner, Christina Rianoff. But I'll leave the details of Robin's extraordinary life to Robin himself. So here is Robin Windsor and the five things he'd choose for his time capsule. Oh, Robin, I'm delighted to have you on my time capsule. Uh, now, Lisa Riley said, you must get Robin on. He's fantastic. And so when you said yes, I was over the moon. Oh, do you know, I listened to Lisa's and that's what um, I, I put something out on my social media to say how much I enjoyed it. So I'm really glad that we were able to get this to happen. I've had actors, I've had singers, I've had musicians. I thought I've not had a single dancer. And I know from my own experience of being, well, 
to put it bluntly, Robin, I am a shit dancer. (laughs) (laughs) And I know just how hard it is to be a top dancer. I've watched people do it with enormous admiration all around me. You know, I've been in musicals and I've seen people do it and I just can't believe the work they put in. They're always there an hour and a half beforehand, stretching and doing exercises and I just turn up and walk on stage. It's terrible. Well, I'm very privileged to be the first dancer you've had and I think anybody can learn to dance. So um, put your application into Strictly as soon as possible. (laughs) Yes, I'm happy to do that. As long as I'm the person who comes on, says something funny and then goes out the first week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to talk about five things from any time in your life that you would treasure enough to put into a time capsule. Four things you treasure and one thing that you'd like to bury in the ground and get rid of. So uh, let's find out what they are. Okay, number one. Well, my first one is quite an obvious one, really. My dance shoes. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today without them. And dancing has always been my life. It will always be my life. And when I'm gone, it will still be part of me. So that is something that is is very, very dear to me. It makes me happy, um, which is why I've been doing it now for touching 39 years. Wow. Yeah, it's been a very, very long time. Yeah. So how many dance shoes would you get through? Oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I wear them until they run bare because um, (laughs) I don't like new shoes. So I try and wear my old ones until they're pretty much fallen apart. Yeah. Um, But I started dancing at the age of three. My parents took me to a local dance studio in Ipswich, which is where I'm from, despite the weird Australian accent. Um, (laughs) And... I just started wiggling my hips in the mirror and they asked if I'd like to have a dance lesson and I said yes and I just started having lessons regularly, started competing locally, winning my first lot of competitions and then as time went on I was making it to the top of the country um, in the under 12s, then again in the under 16s, then again in the under 19s. So as I said before I'm from Ipswich and I knew that I wanted to move to London Mm. and if I was to succeed in my dancing that was a way for me to be able to move. So when did you move to London? I was 15 years old when I moved to London, all by myself. No. Yes. No way. Yeah, it was a very daunting time, um, but it was something that I had to do for me because all the best dance teachers were in London and it was basically everything that I needed to do. My dance partner was actually from Southampton and um, from the ages of 14 to 15, I was travelling on a Friday afternoon down to Southampton so that we could train for the weekend and then go back to school on the Monday and that was quite daunting on my own as well Um, so I figured if I was in London it would be a lot easier for me to be able to rehearse work and become the dancer that I wanted to be that's an enormous journey isn't it from Ipswich down to Southampton that's not easy even if you could drive it's hard a good three and a half hours I mean I packed up my fake tan and sequins every Friday and (laughs) popped myself on the train down into London and then across London and then down to Southampton but my dance partner's family were absolutely amazing So you'd go down and stay with them for the weekend, really? Yeah, and we would practice all day, every day, um, Friday night, all of Saturday, all of Sunday, and come home Monday morning. And back then, the school would allow me to have the Friday afternoon off school and the Monday morning, as long as I did my work on the train. So at that age, they were recognising you as uh, as world standard, really. You were, weren't you? Yeah, I was representing England at the World Championships. I was the team captain of the United Kingdom team match, which was a world team match that they had at Blackpool. 
And I'd got to the peak of where I could get as a competitive dancer. Mm. But living in London by myself and dancing, very expensive thing to be doing. Um, I didn't want to ask my parents for any more money because they'd supported me for so much of my life. I mean, my mum worked in a petrol station. She gave me half of her salary every week so that I could dance. Amazing. And I just couldn't ask for any more. However, I got myself into a huge amount of debt and didn't tell anybody. And mm. I had to make a very heartbreaking decision to hang up my dance shoes because it had got too bad and I didn't want to tell anybody so I secretly withdrew myself from the competitive world of dancing and hit the London's party scene which is sort of um it was my way of trying to compensate that I was missing the most important thing in my life. So sort of hiding, really, in it? Absolutely. Um, I didn't want to tell anybody how much trouble I was in. I was out until all hours every night, the life and soul of the party. Um, but I wasn't happy. Um, I was working in a shoe shop, and it was it was just so strange to see how my life had changed so much in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, moving on a year of that kind of lifestyle, I literally bumped into my dance partner, her, her name is Coralie, outside Topshop in Oxford Street. Now, that's a million to one chance because she lives in Southampton, so I could not believe it. And she was very honest with me and she said, is everything okay? I said, not really. I said, she said, because you've lost so much weight, you don't look well. Um, and we started to have a chat, we went for coffee, and she said that she's not dancing anymore and... She said, how about us getting back together and perhaps doing some stuff for the cruise ships? Because she didn't want to compete anymore, and nor did I really. I wanted to do something else with my dancing. Mm. So she said, in order to do this, you're going to have to move down to Southampton, in with me and my family, and we are going to train like crazy. She needed to lose some weight. I needed to gain some weight. So we were <laughs> working together, and her parents were amazing. They took me in as part of the family. And after six months, we decided, okay, we're ready. And we sent all of our VHS tapes, because it was that long ago, um, <laughs> off to the cruise liners. And um, the day that they were sent of our audition tapes, Coralie got a phone call from the producer of a dance show called Burn the Floor. Burn the Floor is an incredible ballroom dancing show that was um, first created out of something from Elton John's 50th birthday party. Oh. Uh, a group of ballroom dancers were there doing a performance and just happened to be an Australian producer, Harley Medcalf, was there and he said, I've never seen so much passion and energy, enthusiasm coming from any kind of dance form ever. He said, I think this could be on stage with theatrical music and theatrical lights and crazy costumes. And that's where Burn the Floor was born. And Coralie was actually part of that originally, but uh, it sort of dwindled itself off after a, um, an arena tour. So we got this phone call to say, Coralie, we'd like you to come back to Burn the Floor. We're relaunching it as a theatre show. We've got somebody for you to dance with. Would you like to come? And she said to him... I'd love to come, but I'm dancing with Robin Windsor again and I could not go without him. Wow. And Jason Gilkerson said, I remember him from competing. Do you know what? Bring him with you. Wow. And that was the pinnacle turn of my life. But if it wasn't for this chance meeting with Coralie outside Topshop in Oxford Street, I wouldn't be heading off to America for the first time to start what would end up being a world tour for 10 years. Wow, incredible. And good Lord, God bless her. I mean, we all know as performers how easy it would be to turn to you and say, 
Robin, I've been offered this fantastic job. I've got to take it. But to say, no, Robin comes with me. I mean, that's really lovely, isn't it? Absolutely. I I owe her everything. Um, I'm a big believer in the universe and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, But I was so touched that she she put me as such an importance to her. Um, So we we went off and off to Biloxi, Mississippi, where we were to start this tour. I ended up doing what I loved, touring the world with it, performing every night on stage to (laughs) a couple of thousand people a night and getting paid for it. I mean, life (laughs) really could not have been any better. And when I say we toured the world, we went all across America, Australia, Europe, Canada, all through Asia, everywhere that you could imagine. And we actually did all of that three times. Brilliant. So I was very, very fortunate. And then things started to move on. And um, obviously a lot of hard work. Coralie left burn the floor and I danced with various other girls in the meantime and we finally as a show got the call that any dancer in the entire world would ever want and that was to go to Broadway (laughs) and we became the first ever ballroom dancing show on Broadway and we were there for about 11 months and we broke box office records at the Long Acre Theatre and we had huge celebrities coming to watch us like Matt Damon, Meatloaf, Catherine Zeta-Jones, you name it. That, the list went on and on and on. And that was for us, as any dancer, the ultimate at that particular time. Mm, it's incredible. What's so extraordinary is it takes enormous dedication for a young child. I mean, from the age of three, you put all that work in and then it gets to the point where clearly it became too much for you. To ask a a young boy to do that, and, I mean, there must have been other pressures on you. You're living alone in London. It's a difficult thing to do. It can be very lonely, I'm sure. Absolutely. All I did was dance, and um, I was also coming to the realisation about my sexuality and being gay and things at the same time. That was also a very difficult thing for me to deal with. Um, I feel things were a lot easier in the current climate. Um, When you're going back 20 years, even though I was in a ballroom dance world, which is not the most macho arena to be in, I still found it very, very difficult to accept who I was. And those sorts of issues have stuck with me my entire life. You speak to most gay men around my age, Mm. a majority that I've spoken to still have a lot of issues from childhood of being told that being gay was wrong. So that sits with you for a lifetime. It was a very dangerous time as well, wasn't it? I mean, you were made aware, you must have been aware of how difficult the world was for a gay man at that time. With AIDS, just yeah. a terrifying thing. I just missed that sort of AIDS epidemic era. I was sort of like the next generation. But that did create a sort of a reserve, didn't it? All my gay friends, I know that it made everybody so much more cautious. Yes, absolutely. And um, it, it was tough for me. And living in London, moving to London was obviously, in my mind, as a younger boy, mm. I knew I was gay inside. I knew that going to London was going to be the safest place for me to go to. Yeah. Um, but even still, I, I couldn't hold, I, would, I was scared to hold a guy's hand or put my arm around him on the bus or no. kiss in public or anything like that. Um, so those sorts of things, they stick with you. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how once actually starting to live the life that you want to lead, if the pressures on you all around you are don't let anybody know, keep the secret, then it's difficult to break that habit, isn't it? Yeah, it is really, really tough. But I did find myself a very close group of friends. Yeah. And for me, it was my friends who saved me and kept me together the entire time. And having those people around you who are going through a similar thing was an amazing thing to have. And they are still my best friends today. Yeah. 
I love the idea of burn the floor, though. I love the idea that somebody saw it and saw the passion that, of course, everybody knows about now because we've all seen it. But at that time, it was not regarded that way. It wasn't seen as a as a passionate thing, was it, ballroom dancing? Well, ballroom dancing was seen as something that your grandparents did in the local yeah. dance halls back in the day, and it was still a bit... Still a bit daggy and a bit, a bit of an embarrassing thing to do. Um, I was very lucky while I was at school. I never got bullied or anything like that. My peers will all see me with a bright orange face on a Monday morning after a competition from the fake tan <laughs> um, and would basically just ask how it went. So I was very lucky, but we, we lost a lot of talented dancers through bullying over the years, especially boys. Yeah. But moving forward, after Broadway, I was like, what's next for me? And... Um, what is next after Broadway, the biggest thing for a ballroom dancer in the world? Yeah. And then, of course, there is only one thing that's bigger than Broadway for a ballroom dancer, and that, of course, is Strictly Come Dancing, <laughs> which we'll get to in a second. I'm going to jump forward just slightly, about three years, in 2013, mm-hmm. Burn the Floor returned to London and uh, did a run on the West End, and they asked, after me being on Strictly, would I like to headline the show? Now, for me, and this is where it's going to lead into my second item to put in the time capsule, and that will be the poster of Burn the Floor on London's West End. Lovely. Okay, we'll put the shoes in. We'll put your dance shoes in. Uh, Slightly scuffed, a bit worn, as I'm sure they are. Oh, yes. And in they go. They're safe. So let's move on and talk about Burn the Floor coming back. And you, having been in Strictly Come Dancing, you get this opportunity to be the lead dancer. That's amazing. Well, as a young boy, and I'm sure with many young boys and girls across the whole world, you dream of seeing your name in light somewhere. That is the ultimate when you're you're younger. (laughs) Um, And I never thought anything like that would ever happen. And I remember the day that the signage went up outside the Shaftesbury Theatre in the West End, and I looked up, I stood across the road, I watched it go up, and there was my name along with Christina Rianoff, and I burst into tears um, just to see my name above a theatre on the West End. It was just an unbelievable thing to be happening. Mm -hmm. And then I took myself for a little walk around town, and that poster was on buses, taxis, underground, you name it. It was everywhere. (laughs) I had my friends messaging me going, Robin, I love you, but your eyes are following us around the whole of London at the moment, (laughs) and it's driving us crazy. (laughs) Um, But uh, to go back to the show, that really started it all off for me. It was just an amazing experience to be there and doing something in a very, very special place, which for me is London's West End. It's a big theatre as well, Shaftesbury Theatre, isn't it? Yeah, we are actually returning there, which I'll come to in, in, in a little bit. Oh, yeah, fine, OK. All right. Well, I'm going to slightly divert you now, and I'm going to go back to something you said quite early on. Explain the Australian accent. Is it because you spent so long there? <laughs> um, so when I joined Burn the Floor, they were a majority Australian show, Australian right. performance, and you lived in a bubble on tour the entire time. So basically I lived with Australians touring around for 10 years. Um, so I've been from East Anglia, I've very easily picked up that accent because it's quite similar. There's a little twang to it. Um, and when I've had a few to drink, it gets really, really strong. <laughs> I had exactly the same thing happen to me. I went to Australia on tour and when I came back, everybody thought I was Australian. And I'd picked up just that little, just stopped doing the T's, so saying little. Little, little, yeah, water. I mean, in a way, it's a compliment because what you're doing is you're mimicking the people around you because you want to make them feel at ease. But if you ask any Australian, they will go, no, he does not sound Australian at all. <laughs> 
All right, how fantastic. Uh, well, I've never seen my name in lights. I was thinking I'm going to change my surname to Exit. Then they'll be everywhere. <laughs> um, so, um, moving backwards slightly. Now, you'd, you'd assume that I would be taking something with me from Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. But no, because I'm only allowed to pick four things. <laughs> I could have had my entire Strictly wardrobe. There are a few of those pieces in my wardrobe that they do not know I have. So, we're not going to tell anyone about that. Oops, sorry, too late. Um, so... My third item that I would like to put in a time capsule, it will be the first dog lead of my beloved dog, Lucas. Right, what sort of dog is it? He is a fox terrier. Mm. He is a dream. I've probably, and I've always said that may change, I don't really want to have children. So I got my first ever dog eight years ago with my fiancé at the time. Mm. And we had a flatmate and his nickname was The Puppy but his name was Lucas. So when we got a puppy, we called him Lucas. Um, and he has been a lifesaver. Days when I've been down, days when the things haven't been so good, he's always there. Unconditional love. There is no man that's going to greet me on all fours, wagging their tail at me when I come home. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'd keep looking. <laughs> I'm trying, trust me. <laughs> um, especially... During lockdown, having him around, he must have hated us all because we were taking him out for like 15 walks a day. Yeah. Um, but having him around, he knows when you're sad. He'll come and give you a little hug. He's the most wonderful dog in the world. So I would definitely put his very first lead. That's amazing, that instinct that animals have, isn't it? To sense when you need them. Yeah, he's he's been incredible. Um, we, we'll get to this in a minute. I've had a lot of issues with my mental health. And having him around, he doesn't need to say anything. He just knows. And the thing is, he'll sit there and listen to you as well. And he doesn't answer back. Uh, so you can talk, you can actually talk to the dog. I know that might sound a little strange, but he he will sit there and he'll listen. And sometimes it's good for me just to get things out. Yeah, was Lucas there when you, uh, because everybody remembers you becoming injured. Yes. When you had to drop out of Strictly. And that must have been an awful thing to happen. Um, it was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, really. Um I loved being on Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. It was the best job in the world. I think I loved being on that show more than any other person that was there. <laughs> um, and what, we had a little bit of an accident. We were trying some lifts and things at an after party and I, I, I fell at Blackpool and landed on a marble floor and I knocked one of my discs out of my back and I went on a downward spiral. It was the worst thing ever. I kept having injections in my back to try to numb the pain but keep dancing. And as I was to do that, the disc was moving further out oh. and it was trapped a nerve and I had all the sciatic pain down the leg. Oh, horrible. Um, and I had that for nearly a year. And two weeks before Strictly started in 2014, I collapsed to the floor in agony. So I had to go straight in for surgery and withdraw from the show that year. Oh, um, God. And it was really, really tough to have to watch the show go on without you. Yeah. But in my mind, I was like, you know, they'll have me back next year. Of course, they'll, they'll have to. Like, But I got a phone call saying, thank you for all your hard work on the show. We won't be needing you anymore. And that was all I got. Oh, no, Robin. Oh, no. And that hurt more than anything in the world. After all of the work that I put in, how much I loved it, what I'd been through with the injury, just to be just pushed to the side with no real thanks or anything no. was absolutely heartbreaking for me. Yeah, I'm sure. 
Oh, my word, that's awful to hear. But at the same time, that's show business, right? Well, true, but at the same time, you were loved by a great many viewers. My wife and daughter, when I told them I was going to talk to you, you're still their favourite. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's very strange. I obviously did something right somewhere because I get stopped more in the street now than I did when I was actually on the show. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny how that memory, in a way, grows. It becomes stronger. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the people who've taken over or the people who've come along since don't have the same sort of personality. You know, you, you've got to really establish yourself on that show, haven't you? Do you know what? I was just me. My friends all said to me when I first got the job on Strictly, they were like, do not stop being you. Whatever happens, do not stop being you. Yeah. And I kept that thought in my head the whole time. And I was just me. I didn't try to be fake, didn't try to put on anything. I was just the guy that I was always. And I think perhaps that's what people warm to, that I was just me. And I was the first out gay professional on the show as well, who was quite open to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I was on the cover of Gay Times and things like that. But at the time, I hadn't come out to my parents yet. So that was quite something. Oh, my God, yeah. But I just, I'm, I'm always just me. What you see is what you get. When you look at it now with a gay couple dancing together and looking beautiful, yes. and it is, it's fantastic what they're doing. But that has to happen in stages. Those changes happen gradually. And you coming out on the show, you saying, well, I'm gay. That's who I am. It makes an enormous difference. Um, it was amazing to see or read the, the messages that I got from younger gay guys or older gay guys saying, I wish there was someone like you on TV, just being yourself, normal, yeah. not having to worry, not that cliched camp guy that they would always put as the token gay guy on a, on a TV show. Yeah. Um, I was bald head and a beard and was slightly bigger build, <laughs> didn't look like a boring dancer. And I was just being me. And then um, I had a relationship with a, a, a Marcus Collins, a guy on the X Factor, a mixed race guy. So we had a, a mixed race couple, same sex couple together. And the messages that we got from people saying, we really look up to you two and things like that. I couldn't believe that I was in such a position to influence people like that. No, it's interesting, isn't it? If you're doing something that people wouldn't normally see, it really can have an extraordinary effect. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I, I'll take John and Johannes this year. There have been so much resistance to having a same-sex couple on the show. And some of the comments that I was reading prior to them being on the show were awful. Yeah. And then, once they did their first dance, which was fantastic, mm. everybody was like, do you know what? That's pretty good. And now that it's been regularly on television every week, it's just normal. People just need to be seen. Yeah. And that is it. And people won't even think twice about it anymore. But people are worried of change. But when they see the change, it's when you realise change is good, change is great. And that change will filter through into society. That's the thing. It's not just there on the television for people to see. You will now, you know, if you go to Blackpool and you go into the ballroom there, and I've been there, and it's the most fantastic place, isn't it? Yes, wonderful. Oh, amazing. So if you go in there, I bet you almost any day of the week you will see two men dancing together. Yeah, um, and it will be such an amazing thing to see. So obviously, of course, we had the two women dance together last year yeah. uh, with Katya and Nicola. But when you look at it, women have been dancing together for years and years and years. Well, sorry, men really, but 
openly dancing out everywhere because there have always been so many women to go around to men that the women always used to pair up and there's been all-girl competitions and things that have been going on for a very, very long time. So I think it's a massive step forward, not only for Strictly, but for same-sex couples all over the world. Yeah, and also how gorgeous to see... I mean, I know that it's acting, but just to see the romance of that sort of dance as well, that it's not just masculine. It's got a beautiful femininity to it as well, which is just very moving, I think, often. Well, for me, the best way to describe what we do in in ballroom is is two people moving together as one in perfect harmony. Mm. That, for me, is exactly sums up what we do. It doesn't matter who it is dancing with who. There's a leader and there's a follower. You can just decide who will be who. And as long as one leads and as long as one follows, you can create true beauty on a dance floor. Yeah, and you have. But we are going to put (laughs) the lead of your lovely dog. Lead or collar, the whole thing all in one, yeah. (laughs) Lead and collar, we'll put them both in there. I might get a special collar, a little sort of diamond-studded one. A special dress collar. (laughs) He's got one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brilliant, Okay. Right, that goes in. So that's your third item already. Wow. I know. So we've got one more good thing and one more bad thing. Okay, as is the way with podcasts, this is the point where the podcast provider who supplies this podcast asks us to take a short pause in the hope they can fill that pause with either adverts or sponsorship messages. Or both, hopefully. Either way, we shan't be gone long. See you in a moment. 
a huge amount of money who knew you had to pay tax every year. Uh, <laughs> I got a horrendous bill for £100,000 mm. and it wiped me out completely. So I'd lost everything. I couldn't find my way back out of that hole. Um, we all have dark days. Everybody, or every, We all have bad days, sorry. Everybody has a bad day. But my bad days went from dark days and then those dark days just went black and I'd find that I wasn't getting out of bed for like five, six days at a time. Mm. Um, and this was... This was around 2016, and it was just getting worse, and I didn't really know what was going on. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. Um, and depression, it can just take hold of anybody at any time. With me, because so many bad things had happened all at once, I just couldn't keep control of it. Um, it got very, very bad, and when I say bad, um, I ended up in a hotel room, and I'd written lots of letters to very close friends and family and had enough. Um, stuff in front of me to knock out an elephant. And my time for me was up at that point. I got to a point where I could not go on anymore. Um, and all it took, again, something very chance, a chance worthy is um, pretty much as things were happening, my phone lit up and I saw a name of somebody on the phone, somebody who I didn't even like at the time, but I loved. And seeing their face come up and picture a name on my phone stopped me from doing what I was doing. And I had a horrible realisation. And it was at that moment there that I contacted the charity SANE. Uh-huh. And they were amazing um, at being able to help me. And I went into therapy and started to get my life back together. But it was very, very, very dark time. Wow. So that's two very difficult times you've been through. One as a teenager, and then later on, thinking... I mean, I can understand it. I absolutely understand it, Robin, because if you think that everything that you hold precious has gone, yeah. something you've spent your entire life working towards. And as you say, right at the beginning, you said, I dance, I always will dance, that's who I am. Yeah. And, and if that dance is just getting other people to dance or teaching or passing on those skills, you're still involved in it. But if you feel that everything has gone... It must be really awful, really awful. I can look back at those times now and I think, oh, gosh, how did you let that happen? But I had no control of it at the time. No. And I um, got myself back together and I had not talked about it to anybody. And I made a very conscious decision in 2018 um, that I was going to retire from performing. And I took a job out in St Lucia. Yeah. Um, and I went out there to work at, as an entertainment manager in a resort for a bit. But prior to that, I did a farewell tour. I thought, you know what, this is it. Um, and I spoke to Sane and they said, your tour is about your life, right? I said, yes. And they said, we think that you should tell your story. Would you be up for it? Wow. And I'm like, I don't think so. And they said, trust us on this. So I had it written into the script. I sat on the stage just with a spotlight every single night and told what I've just told you. And you could hear a pin drop in the audience. And I sobbed every single night for the first half of the tour while I was telling my story. Um, And then towards the end of the tour, I stopped crying when I was telling the story. So the more I got it out there, the less painful it was. Yeah. So the moral of everything there is it's very good to talk and get it all out. And to have, I'd go to stage door every night and there'd be people there. Thank you so much for this. 
you don't know my my son's going through this, my daughter, my husband, I've been dealing with this, this and the other. The fact that you're able to sit on stage and tell that to an auditorium full of people every single night is helping so many people. Mm. And it helped me too. So it was a win-win. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because as you said, you had those people that you danced with for 10 years who were now still your very close friends. Yes. I know that you had Lisa Riley at the end of a phone. You had all these people who probably could have helped, yeah. but you don't think that they can for some reason. You, you, again, being, being a, a, a male is very difficult to talk uh, and it's always been a thing. And I was almost embarrassed for how I was feeling. I didn't want people to know. But it took, it took a lot of courage. But when I got to that point of being able to talk about it openly, it solved all the problems. So obviously the one thing that I'm going to urge to every single person out there, talk to a friend, a colleague, a charitable organisation, anyone, but just talk to somebody if you're feeling bad. Very good, Yes. And I don't know Sane. It's not a charity I know. So I definitely will look it up and we'll put a link to it on this episode. So if anybody's interested, there'll be a link in the description and you can go and look at it. And it certainly, to me, sounds like the sort of charity that we should be supporting. Absolutely. They're a small charity. All the money is just raised. It goes direct to them. They have their phone system. Normally when you phone some kind of charities, you get put through to different departments and things like this. But with them, you go straight to speak to somebody. Really? Because the worst thing is uh, you're, you've got the courage to call somebody and you go, oh, I'm going to put you through to it or you've got an automated service. You panic and you, you need someone to speak to and you want to speak to them right there and then. Yeah. They are very, very, very special people. How did you find them? Um, I reposted something of theirs on Twitter. So that evening, the evening that I was the worst one ever. Um, it was the next morning, actually. I had followed them on Twitter and I just retweeted a couple of their things and they actually contacted me. Right. And they asked me why I'd started retweeting all of their stuff. How extraordinary. They actually came They actually came to me. So they could almost sense it. Your involvement meant they thought, hang on, something's wrong here. Yeah, it was just... a. a, a about four or five tweets of theirs, I just retweeted one one after the other, and they asked me why I'd done that. Yeah. And that was really what helped and started everything off. What an amazing thing. Well, I'm very impressed. Yes. Okay, so they definitely deserve to be preserved and, in fact, encouraged. Yes. So yeah. they go into the time capsule. So what is it that you say they're connected, the two things, something that you want to get rid of? It will be my bad thoughts. I want them dead and buried. I still carry them with me now. And it's something that I want to put down. Um, fact of life is I think I'm probably always going to carry them. You never know when that black dog is going to reappear. And it does from time to time. But the one thing I do know now is how to deal with them and how to act on them when they start to happen. I tell someone straight away if I'm feeling rubbish. Like it's the first thing I do. I've got a certain amount of friends that I can call at any time of day or night and say, I'm feeling really rubbish. And they'll just say, talk to me. Yeah. And as soon as you talk to them, you feel better. I find exercise for me is the biggest, most important thing. I get up and go to the gym at six o'clock in the morning. Um, when I was unable to do that, 
again, I was struggling because getting up and going to the gym, you're just letting out all of that stress that's been building up. Doesn't work for everybody, but that's what works for me. You've been doing that exercise, you know, that hard work since you were a tiny child. So it's absolutely part of your life, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things contribute to depression and, and people's mental health. Obviously, the pandemic over the last year and a half mm -hmm. has been horrendous for so many. Um I started doing a thing on my Facebook page called Friday Night In, In With Me, rather than going out, out. And basically it was for people who were on their own, who were stuck at home on their own and needed somebody to talk to. Right. So I'd get everybody up and get them dancing and just having a bit of a laugh. And I'd then set up a page where I'd put a picture and it had all different coloured hearts on it on my Facebook page, red down to black. And if you were red, you'd put your red heart on there. If it was going down towards the, any colour it was, if you were putting a black heart or a purple heart, you were in trouble. Yeah. And that was a way for you to reach out. And I started to create almost a little online community of people who were struggling during lockdown. It was such an amazing, rewarding feeling for me as well, knowing that I was helping people. Yes. Out of adversity, really brilliant things come along. So I think particularly of Sophie Ellis-Bexter, dancing in her kitchen. Oh, you know. <laughs> just amazing. Amazing. I remember watching that when it first started and just thinking, there she is with her children running around her feet and she's just doing it for a few followers. And within weeks, it was hundreds of thousands of people going, yeah, we're going to have a party with Sophie. It's brilliant. And now that's just led to Children in Need where she's just raised an extortionate amount of money Incredible. Uh, for charity just by doing that. Yes, But things like that that you did there, starting just a, a group of people that look out for each other and just using a simple symbol like that, it's a very good idea. It's great. And I think that it would be great to have a massive forum that everybody knew about because obviously only I have a certain amount of following that it was for the people who followed me. But I think something like that really needs to be out there for everybody because the last year and a half has really taken its toll on so many people. Yeah. And they would be experiencing mental health problems for the, probably the first time in their life and don't know how to deal with them. No. Um, and there just isn't enough help. And as you say, when you first feel that way, most people, I think, feel that it's just them. They're the first person in the world to feel it. Yeah. And once you've had counselling and you've had help and you've spoken to people about these things, you start to realise that there's a whole community of people out there who at different times are suffering in different ways and that they're there to help. And in fact, you're not the first person and it is possible to get through these things. Oh, absolutely. It's really hard when you start to feel really good again. And I promise everybody, if you're having a bad time, you will feel great again. And it is, it's hard to imagine that now. Um, when you do get good, you can't forget the people who are still struggling. And we all do that. Once you're feeling good, you get back into everything. <laughs> but you always remember the people that helped you along the way. They need you still. Yes. Um, I think the, 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 the dark days... I don't want the dark days anymore. No. Um, but I will never stop thinking of others and helping others. No. And watching out for it. You know, these things can come on you suddenly. It's, it's weird. You can always notice with your friends. Social media, as much as I hate social media, it can really help. You can see how people normally post. If people just disappear for a little bit, check on them. If people start posting things that are different to what they would normally post, check on them. All you've got to do is pick up the phone and say, is everything okay? And do it twice because everyone will say yes the first time. But normally the second time is when they'll actually go, do you know what? I need a bit of help. Well, that's great advice. If people are struggling and they listen to something like that, it helps to hear that somebody's got through it and is now sort of in a way 
watching out for other people. That gives you a real sense of hope. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so what have you got coming up next? What can we look forward to? Well, I'm on tour again in a show called Come What May from January through to April. And then, I can't believe this is actually happening, but Burn the Floor is... 25 years old and they are doing the 25 year reunion tour and it's only seven or eight venues across the uk and it's all the people who have done burn the floor that went on to strictly so it's ali ashtonette kevin karen myself joanne clifton kai luba diane and some others that are still to be named it's just going to be exceptional but for me especially that for me is full circle it's where i started And I say it's where I'm going to finish, but there'll probably be some more that come after that. But for me, that's my entire adult dance career doing full circle. Um, We've already sold out in London's West End, so I am over the moon to be back doing something where it all started for me. Oh, how fantastic. Are you coming anywhere near Tunbridge Worlds? That's my question. Guildford? That's close enough for me. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, then I know what I'm buying my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Oh, I should be delighted. Robin, it's been a real joy to talk to you. What a lovely man you are. Thank you for so much joy that you've given us watching you dance. Thank you very much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my delightful guest, Robin Windsor. Thank you to him for taking part, and thanks to you for listening to our chat. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't felt the need to subscribe to this podcast yet, I hope we've persuaded you to click on the subscribe with that episode. Of course, there are loads more that we've already released and plenty more brilliant guests coming up. You can rate the show and sometimes write a review or leave a nice comment to encourage others to listen. And we're always grateful for that. You can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter and Instagram, where we're very active and easily engaged. Or you can follow us on Facebook, where we're bloody useless. The theme music was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available to listen to or download on Spotify. So you can dance around the kitchen as it plays, improvising your own lyrics. Or is that just me? This has been a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Now, you may notice the similarity in names, and I'm proud to say that John is my dad. No, he's my son, sorry. The result of a very happy marriage. Before that, my wife and I courted for 10 years. <laughs> Eventually, she said, look, we've been together for 10 years now. I said, yeah, what about it? And she said, well, don't you think we ought to make it a permanent commitment? I said, oh, how? And she said, well, we should get married. (laughs) I was relieved. I thought she wanted a pension. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.